Welcome everyone to the Filament Games podcast. We are recording live this week from the Social Impact Summit in Los Angeles, California. And I'm really excited about meeting a whole bunch of new people I haven't met before. Um, everyone we're going to be talking to are people who are at the intersection of social innovation and positive impact. So today I have a very special guest with me. Uh, Holly, please introduce yourself. Hi. Um, well, thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Holly Copeland, and I oversee our philanthropic work at Horizon Therapeutics, um, a global biotechnology company. Cool, cool. Can't wait to get into it. So, Holly, first, tell me about what Horizon Therapeutic does and uh, specifically what you do for them. Excellent. Um, so, we're a global biotechnology company focused on rare rheumatic diseases So these are very small patient populations that oftentimes don't have a treatment for the ailment that they might have. And um, the work that we do hopefully improves not just the quality of life, but also the longevity of of the lives of those that are affected. Um, My role at the company is to create, build, scale our social impact work. So anything related to grants, um, sustainability efforts, and, and impact, broadly speaking. Oh, that's so cool. Okay. So tell me a little bit about the origin story of Horizons. Like I've done some research. So tell me about how it got started and focused on this very specific thing. Sure. So um, we embody that quintessential startup story. Our founding CEO, Tim Walbert, who's still our CEO today, um, started the the company in a coffee shop, uh, him and just a handful of other employees a little more than a decade ago. And since then, the company has witnessed, participated in meteoric growth um, to where we are today now, um, you know, a roughly 20 billion, 20 billion plus market cap um, on NASDAQ. So it's been an incredible ride. And what I think differentiates us in, in the space of public companies around impact is that our CEO has a couple of diseases himself, autoimmune conditions. And so for him, it was really important to integrate this idea of service and community into the foundation of the company. And, you know, that's despite the fact that we're not a B Corp, we're not a social entrepreneurship venture, but yet he still saw the value in making that an integral part of our identity. And so he invested in philanthropy and giving back um, at the very uh, beginning, uh, by bringing me on board to build and grow this this work and providing a budget, and it's been incredibly exciting because as the company has grown and scaled, so has our impact work over the years. For sure. So that's so interesting. You're doing impact work within an impact focused organizations. So how do those two roles align and diverge? Sure. So a lot of the folks on our team that are focused on the impact work and developing medicines are, are more insular in how can we create treatments for these, these patient populations that don't have access to medicine. My work has really been focused on how can we build a bridge between that work and the broader ecosystem of impact in ways that can creatively develop our, our future STEM leaders and support our future entrepreneurs um, by layering a, a lens of diversity, equity, and inclusion into that development. So what I mean is uh, we have four pillars of giving in our impact work. So our four pillars include STEAM, which is science, technology, engineering, the arts, and mathematics, sustainability, healthcare, and innovation. And the intention of our investments 
in community partners and different organizations that are addressing these areas is to really create capacity and, and space for our future diverse leaders within those areas to not only innovate, but then also potentially to partner with us on the business side in, in ways that might make sense um, for the, the, the folks who are driving these, these solutions. Oh, cool. So are your focus is focused on developing leaders already within the company or going out to your community and hopefully develop future leaders that could come work at your company or others in the area? So a little bit of both, right? So the way that we've structured our our philanthropic work is we have internal facing programs, which are employee focused, and then we have external facing programs. One example that I think might bring this to light is a partnership that we have with MIT Solve, on the annual Horizon Prize. And the intention there is to leverage MIT's significant network of 135,000 plus global academics, entrepreneurs from all over the world to solve a a challenge question that we pose every year, um, specifically related to gaps within the, the rare disease community. And what we found is that, um, we are revealing ideas, innovation, solutions from countries and geographic areas that we otherwise would not have access to. And it's incredibly exciting to see not just the solutions that are proposed, but then following that, how they can then partner with individuals on our research and development team or our business development team to perhaps explore how those, those solutions might be able to be scaled. So it's a, it's a really interesting um, partnership that we have that allows us to not just invest in the innovation ecosystem, but then also potentially grow with them. Yeah, absolutely. That's so interesting. What are the, so I assume you also do traditional R and D for, as well as sponsoring this kind of external competition What do you, you know, traditionally a lot of um, biotechnology companies uh, tend to be uh, cloaked in NDAs, very focused on their own technologies and kind of keeping those technologies secret uh, because it's ultimately their value. So, So how do you balance that a lot of your intellectual property is what's, what is of value to my company, your company and Uh, fostering innovation in the broader community. How do you balance those two things? Sure. So um, we have a a separate team on our research and development side that that actually drives collaborative efforts with academic institutions and researchers in those specific areas. The work that I do is more broadly um, focused on ecosystem cultivation. So another example I'll provide is we have this program called Horizon Scholars, and it's a global program where we support students um, from historically marginalized communities at nine different academic institutions globally, all studying STEM fields. And the intention there is to provide wraparound support to them so that they can not only thrive in college, but then also graduate and hopefully come work for us. Um, the, The support focuses on debt relief. So the students might get full financial aid and still have a debt gap burden, which makes it challenging for them to, you know, take on that debt and, and, you know, choose a career without thinking about how much money they're going to make or the pressures of working while they're going to school. So we eliminate that by covering that debt gap. We provide them with an employee mentor so they can have this single point of contact throughout their academic journey, hopefully developing a relationship with the company and then provide quarterly programming and other supplemental 
opportunities that are intended to benefit those students. Now, the intention there is that we understand diversity of thought drives better outcomes. There's a lot of research that supports that now. So if you have, you know, people who have the same lived experience, all solving problems together, they're going to approach those problems in a similar way. And this approach that we've taken in investing um, in this particular way with students of diverse backgrounds is that we know that when they come to the table, their lived experiences, their understanding of the world is going to frame their solutions in a new and unique way. And that leads to greater innovation when you get those perspectives represented in whatever solutions are being developed. I love your approach. It's so tangible and actionable. I find a lot of times I talk to people kind of in your roles where it's it's all very kind of ethereal and thought-driven and we've published stuff, but it, this is like you are grabbing these students, you are identifying them, you are providing them with wraparound services. You are taking care of the problems as the, you know, the debt relief or whatever else, uh, which is uh, awesome. What have you learned from running that program over the years? I, I think your question actually um, tees up something that I've become very passionate about and what I'll be speaking about tomorrow at the Social Innovation Summit about, which is our unique approach to philanthropy really being centered on um, humility. So a lot of times you will have funders who come to the table with partners and think that they already know what the problem is, what caused the problem and how to solve it. And instead of approaching the situation with humility, we don't know a lot of things about this situation. We don't know what the right solutions are. We don't know what's going to work. So here are our ideas. What ideas do you have? And let's talk and meet in the middle in a way that allows us to do something even greater than we would have done individually. So that's an approach that we've taken in this Horizon Scholars program where we don't select the students. We didn't want to participate in a process that we feel is, um, you know, somewhat exploitative by making students kind of commit their hardships on paper and compete with one another on, you know, who has the greatest hardship and is more worthy of scholarship. Um, we, di we didn't want to participate that. And, and instead, with humility, approached our academic partners and said, you're working with the students. You know all of the nuances that are going on in their lives. You know who's best poised to be able to capitalize on this tremendous opportunity. You select the student, tell us who they are, and then we will provide them with the mentor and the wraparound support. So I think approaching partnerships and impact work with humility is a really important attribute that I would personally like to see happen more often in this space. I love that approach. It's a very like heart-centered approach to we have the means and the, but let's go out to the community and you tell us what you need or you help us identify the people. What is, um, when you think about your role in CSR, it's changed a lot just as a corporate function over the last um, 15, 10, five years. Um, what would you, what advice would you give to someone early in their professions who's interested in the type of work that you do? What do you think, what would be your advice and what do you think is exciting about your field and where do you think your field needs to grow? Sure. Um, well, I believe that with the emergence of Gen Z onto the employable stage, 
there is going to be an increased demand for employment places to commit to social impact. And again, not just those that are B Corps or social entrepreneurship ventures, but every organization. And so it seems to me that it would be wise for, for different employers to start thinking about how can they invest not just in giving back, but also in creating space and opportunities for their employees to give back as part of their, their work. Because what that does is it not just contributes to culture, um, which is you know important for employee retention. Uh, that's a number that HR departments track and it costs money, right? You, you train employees and then you lose them and then you have to retrain them. That's a, that's a business cost. So if employees are happy and fulfilled in their jobs, they're more likely to stay. And so, for example, one of the employee-facing programs that we have at Horizon is called Boards Plus. We've actually won an international award for this program for innovation. Um, but the intention is to really be sort of an e-harmony for employees that want to serve on a nonprofit board. So they, they have an interest. They don't know where to start. They don't know how to, to match up or like what the different levels might be because there are young professional boards, auxiliary boards, full boards, and each of those have a give or get requirement. So what we do is we step in, we handhold through the process and, and help with the placement. And then we convene all of our employees that have been placed on boards quarterly so they can compare notes and help each other out. What this has done is created a a leadership development opportunity that our HR team has recognized because as they have high performers or individuals that they want to cultivate as future leaders, a program like this can be incredibly helpful in developing those skills. So there are lots of opportunities for employees to think about the philanthropic and impact space as having multiple benefits, sort of residual benefits, not beyond just what they do to support the community, but also how they're developing and cultivating their leaders within their organization. That's so smart because so so many times in large organizations, there's people who want to grow professionally and want to advance, but just they're going to have to wait till the person above them like moves on to get the role. So this is an opportunity for people to grow in a leadership space in kind of a non-traditional route. Exactly. Right? Well, we're going to wrap up and I have one final question. As you, as I explained, Filmic Games is a studio that makes games and uh, XR experiences for positive impact. And the reason why what we do can be so impactful is that by nature, um, games, simulations, visceral experiences are so engaging when you think about engagement as like a key to motivate, inspire, educate, what comes up for you? Oh gosh. Um, I guess I would issue a challenge to you and your team, which is I would love to see more opportunities for young girls who have an interest in STEM to see a career pathway in some of these areas like gaming and development of games um, where where women are underrepresented. I'm sure you all have seen the headlines about how women in the gaming space, my daughter being one of them, um, tend to receive a lot of abuse because it's just a, a, a toxic culture that really perpetuates this unwelcoming space for, for women and girls. And so, um, you know, as we move closer to this, this future world where AI and technology is going to really dominate every single sector, we need to be sure that girls, 50% of the population or plus, um, feel like they, there's a, a place for them to participate in those dialogues to help shape what that world looks like and to feel empowered to do so. 
Challenge accepted, Holly. <laughs> um, I think we think very consciously because we're a studio that makes games for positive impact. And we, it's, it's half, half. I think we have, a, personally, we have a culture that's about um, uh, equally divided in terms of uh, females, males, and non-binary with a good, healthy dose of non-binary in there. Um, I think, but also uh, different populations are attracted to work for us because we make games for positive impact and we make games for good. I think part of it, you know, it's up to studios like ours to partner with organizations that are really uh, focused on these efforts. Um, I just came from a session about trying to get more people of color into gaming. Um, They're currently at 4% of the workforce, which is insane because we know how many people play games. I think... I also think this industry is just in its, in its infancy. I think as we, we already know that there's a, about, uh, there's equal representation of gender in the players that play games. So I think you'll get very little pushback from our industry is that the people making the games should be equally represented. Some of it is opportunity. Some of it is culture shift. Some of it is like, having role models in the industry that young, young women, girls, LGBTQ plus can look up to. Um, it's going to take some time, but I'm really hopeful that we'll get here. Well, I'm hopeful too. I think as long as organizations like yours exist, hopefully others in your space will, will catch on and, and try to integrate some of the best practices that you've developed into the work that they're doing. And organizations like Horizon can continue to help cultivate and invest in the the creativity of those young STEM leaders and and hopefully help create a pipeline. Well, Holly, I always say that video games is the gateway drug to a STEM education. I love Uh, that. Because it's something (laughs) that, you know, there are very few kids today who haven't played a game. Mm -hmm. I think it's very tangible and accessible. I always say when I was small, the only professions I knew were like teacher because... I had a teacher. I knew doctor because I went once a year. I knew dentist, but it was really hard for me to, I guess I knew there was people who made clothes and people who make food, but I think like video games are so important because it's a piece of technology that people are with most of their lives. Absolutely. Um, and you know, something else that makes me think of too, is we, we've tried to counter this narrative for children that when they think of a STEM career, they think of a lab coat and a lab. Yes, and there are lots of professions that children can pursue. And to your point, most of the kids nowadays have played a game or are playing actively. And so for them to build that that intellectual bridge between something that they enjoy spending their time doing and a potential career, like we need to make that more clear to them. Totally agree. Totally agree. I think what's I think what's so special about the video game industry myself is because it is one of the few technology focused industries that also includes the arts and creative writing, which are two kind of careers that traditionally, I think a lot of people are discouraged to go into the arts or in, in creative writing because all they hear is how hard it is and how much work it is and how underpaid, but in the context of video games, like those professions are important in demand and well-paid. So I even like it, like not only are video games the gateway drugs to a STEM education, um, I think that um, uh, we have a home for artists and writers in the video game industry in like professional careers, which um, 
you know, continues to be our mission to get out there as, uh, so people know about it. Mm-hmm. Well, I might share one other example. Since we have a moment. Yeah. <laughs> they're not kicking us out. So, um, we, so we partner with the Chicago Cubs to host this annual steam fair And the intention there was, again, to expose kids to this idea that STEM careers are outside of the lab, potentially, and can involve fun things like ball trajectory and different elements on, like, how physics might impact the game of sports and that that could be a potential career path. Um, So at this, this annual event that we host with them, we were intentional about including the A. We want the idea that the artistic process, the, the iteration that happens, the invention, um, creating something new, all of those skills and attributes apply in the arts mirror what happens in STEM. And so it's really important to include that A in the STEAM. I'm, I'm seeing that more and more often now, yeah. you know, typically historically it's just been STEM, but including the arts and, and the work that you're doing is, is integral to that because it is absolutely the same. Well, I always think that a lot of, because we're not getting picked out, we're going to keep talking. <laughs> I always think we do specifically, I see it most commonly in girls is that girls start off as like the greatest makers and crafters and knitters and crocheters and paper macheers. Like, yes, there is an artistry to one's crochet work or to one's mobile, but it's a lot of it is engineering. Yeah. And I feel, I think it's so interesting that like when you see a boy or any child play with Legos, we think, oh, that's a future engineer. I'm like, have you seen some of these like craft and art creations? Like they are just as complex in terms of how they're brought together. Absolutely. Definitely. Our makers, our young makers who have chosen more womenly or female oriented craftsmanship should not be excluded uh, from STEAM. And I would argue like engineering and building and creating. You know, just another uh, story that comes to mind, my, my daughter, who's now 20, so she's much older, but when she was in middle school, she and her little crew of girlfriends, you know, were in orchestra and chess club, and they were obsessed with robotics. And they were very excited to join the robotics team because the, the junior high team was good. Unfortunately, the very first meeting that they had, um, the leader of the, the team was very, uh, what we would describe as like hyper-masculine. Sure. So it was like competitive and aggressive and it completely turned the girls off and they all decided not to participate, which was heartbreaking yeah. as a mother when you, I understand the need to create spaces for diversification in these areas. And yet, you know, something like that can deter you know, a potential career path. Who knows where that would have led if the girls had, had decided that they, they felt welcome yes. in that space. Holly, it's funny. Anyone who knows Filament and follows our podcast is going to think Holly's a plant. She's not. But <laughs> we, six years ago, we won an NSF grant to explore how to bring traditionally underrepresented people, girls and people of color, into robotics. <sighs> Yes, and specifically needed. because it has just been traditionally a hobby, pastime, area of study, future career that's been for the elite and for the white and mm-hmm. for males. And um, when we know that it has a big creativity component, a build, and there's nothing inherent about robotics 
that shouldn't appeal to girls and people of color. And we, when we started doing our research, part of it was a just access and the cost of robotics and needing to have a mentor to teach you. Um, uh, but part of it was just a lot of people found it unapproachable, like your daughter's experience. Mm -hmm. So we really focused on, well, how about we made, make a game that teaches you robotics and then, a video game and the style is not mechanical, gritty, severe. The style is friendly and warm um, and uh, has a lot of abilities to customize creatively your robot, but that we then set up challenges that are super approachable, like create a robot waiter to deliver a sandwich to kind of encourage them. And what we found is we're still kind of, we, the original funding has elapsed, but now we've brought on some corporate partners to help fund the build of it. And it's an early access version is out. And what we found in talking to robotics teachers that we're working with is I didn't realize how much some of the girls in my class uh, freaked out over the day where we all stand in a circle and we show the prototype that we've made. And these prototypes take like two weeks to build. And it wasn't until they played with Roboco that they actually realized it's so stressful to show my robot in front of everyone because what happens if it doesn't work or what happens if I get tripped up in the controllers and Mm -hmm. can't do it. And just that was creating so much anxiety, which we know in games, like games just, invite you to try it. And if you fail, the, the game's just kind of like, try again. Mm-hmm. Nothing got broken. Nobody knows. Like, Oh, that's great leadership development. of a, a safe place to fail and to iterate. Because no one thinks that engineering design thinking is get it right the first time. Right. Any engineers know it's more about embracing the process. So we're still learning about that product and we're still in development to try to even make it better. But it's... It's uh, super something we're passionate about. Because if you look at the data on kids who participate in robot robotics programs when they're young and where they end up in their career, there's like a direct correlation, mm-hmm. correlation to stability, financial success, meaningful work. Yeah. And absolutely. the path is right there. And I love how what you're thinking about is creating other spaces for different types of leadership. Right. It doesn't have to be a one size fits all, which that that definition of leadership is oftentimes, um, you know, focused on the historical, you know, white male perspective. Right. Yeah. And, and in this, this space. And so how do we look at leadership through lenses that might be more inclusive and, and represent other groups? So that's Absolutely. great. Holly, thank you so much for talking to us today. I'm so I'm going to be very excited to follow your work at Horizons Therapeutics, and I wish you all the best in what you're doing. Thank you. It's such a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for listening to the Filament Games podcast. If you like to hear more about games, game-based learning, and what's happening at our studio, subscribe today on iTunes or Stitcher. And be sure to visit us at our website, filamentgames.com.